Thank you for joining this sermon podcast from Cornerstone Fellowship in Forest City, North Carolina. We hope that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message. Cornerstone exists to glorify God as we passionately pursue Him and make Him known through worship, discipleship, fellowship, and outreach. Here's today's message. We're going to look at a passage today found in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and we will begin our reading in verse 1. Matthew 17, and we'll begin our reading in verse 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured or transformed before them. And his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And make sure you get this. And while he was still speaking, in other words, God just interrupted him. Shut up, Peter. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, while Peter was still trying to talk, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And make sure you get this. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified and Jesus came to them and touched them and said get up and do not be afraid and lifting up their eyes they saw no one except Jesus himself alone and as they were coming down from the mountain Jesus commanded them saying tell the vision to no one until the son of man has risen from the dead He's very cautious about this. I don't want a big stir yet. Once I have risen from the dead, the only ones that are going to believe that are going to be the ones that need to believe that. Right now, if I, I, I could do enough things that I could stun the world, if they had seen what you just saw, it would blow their minds. I could convince the world anytime I want to that I really am God. You heard the voice. You saw what I look like. Don't tell anybody about this until after the resurrection because once most of the world thinks I'm dead and gone, there won't be the temptation to try to turn me into the next president of the United States. So as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, Why then do 
do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? This is from Malachi. It says Elijah will return one day. It's a prophet, uh, Malachi, near the end of the Old Testament. He answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they wished. Now, they've drifted off course here, but that's just like them. <laughs> After all they've just seen, they got this crazy question about a prophecy from Malachi that has very little to do with what they've just seen. Jesus is going to bring them back to the point at hand. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their Hands, and then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Spiritually speaking, Elijah has come back. John the Baptist represented that. And yes, if you go to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says, I'm not Elijah. So I want to make sure we got that covered before you let that worry you through the whole sermon. But he says, spiritually speaking, there has one that has come like Elijah. But Peter and John and James, what I'm trying to get you to see is they had no regard for him when he came. John the Baptist came. None greater born among women than John the Baptist. And they, 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 they butchered him. And they're going to do the same thing to me. That's why I carried you up there. I wanted you to see all of this. So what's going on here? Well, we know it's the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. I think we've got that by now. But we really, to understand what's taking place, have to go back to the previous chapter. And we realize there that a brand new stage in Jesus' ministry has begun. If you go back to chapter 16, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And if you remember in Matthew 16, Peter would have nothing of it. He said, that just cannot happen. They're not going to kill you like that. You know what we've always said as Jews. Cursed is he who dies on the cross. And Peter, uh, he is kind of like progressive Christians are today. There's no need for that. God doesn't need to butcher his son to save me from my sins. That's... Uh, that's, that's kind of read into it. At the, Jesus died a martyr, not a savior. And, and I don't know what, you know, progressives never have a good answer for. Well, what do you do with your sins then? How, what happens to them? And, and I guess they just figure, well, they just sort of go away somewhere. I, I, I don't know. I've never gotten a good answer about that. Peter is acting just like them right now just you don't need to go to the cross now going to the cross is hard enough and letting his disciples know that from this point on I'm headed to the cross oh there's going to be a lot of things happen between here and there but I'm on my way to Jerusalem and just understand when I get there it's going to be bad and he's not looking forward to that 
He knows it's going to be a very painful and a very difficult time. And so when Peter begins to argue, you remember what Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. This is the same thing that Satan told me when I started my ministry, when I went out into the desert to be tempted by him. This is the very same thing he said then. There's no need to go to the cross. If you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And, and if you want to prove that you really are the Son of God, no need for a resurrection, just jump off the temple and, and he'll send his angels and they'll grab you and pick you up before your foot even hits the first little stone. And, and then they'll all know that, that, that you are the Son of God. And hey, these people are starving and they have a lot more rocks than they do bread. So if you really want a following Jesus, if you really want to boost yourself, and, and your popularity, let word get out that you can turn stones into bread. That ought to do it. Anything but the cross. Because if you go there, I'm pretty much out of business. He looks at Peter, he says, you sound like Satan, Peter. Do you think I want to go? Do you think I'm looking forward to it? And now I've got to argue with you about it. Then let's, we're still in chapter 16 here. I, I'm, I'm reading verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, he said, well, hang on, Peter, it gets better. He said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to follow me, he said he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever's got dibs on his life, I, I, I'm going to do what I want to do. I, I might be, you know, religious some. I might catch church when I can. But pretty much my life is in my hands. And I, I don't know that we've ever lived in a time on this earth when self had replaced soul to the extent that it has nowadays. It's all about me. It's all about what I want and, and what I want to do. And, and it's, it's about my rights and my whatever. And it's... It's just we have made the world about ourselves. Jesus said, you do that and you lose your life. He says, for what will it profit a man? Rhetorical question here. If he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul. What if you got the whole world and forfeited your soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Notice the last verse. Truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here. I don't know that he looked at Peter, James, and John and winked, but it would have been a good time. Some of you standing here who will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. You're about to see something like you've never seen before. Matthew says, then six days later, and we pick up in chapter 17. Six days later, He carries them up on a mountain. We find this story in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So it's in all three of the synoptic Gospels. We call those three soon optic. Soon means together. Optic means to see. 
they see the life of Jesus and his ministry pretty much the same way. They use kind of the same pattern throughout their Gospels. John is very different from them, and I would argue that his experience that he's about to have on this mountain is going to affect the way he writes his Gospel. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you have it here in chapter 17, and Mark is in chapter 9, and then Luke in it's chapter 9. Luke gives us more details about it. Luke says that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray and carried these three with him. But when they got up there, it turned out to be an incredible experience. Maybe you've had an experience like this with God. Something happened in your life that just absolutely took your attention away from every worry you had in the world. All of the things that had been important to you, somehow or another, God got a hold of you. He got your attention through that like never before. And Peter says this in verse 4, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I want to share with you today how to know if you are in a good place. How to know you are in uh, one of those places that when you leave there, your soul is nourished. You might not leave there richer as far as human standards are concerned, but you've had an experience there that will change your life forever. You will never, ever be the same again because of what you experience with Jesus Christ during that time. How do you know that you've ever been or that you're in a place like that number one it's a place where we're led by God it says Jesus led them God Jesus had to lead them there they weren't going to get there on their own Jesus had to lead them that is so important and Jesus has already set an example for us yes Jesus the, the incarnate God in flesh, He has set the example. It says that He was led by the Spirit. As a matter of fact, that's how He wound up in the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. He was led by the Spirit. And you and I need to be led by the Spirit. A lot of times we, we throw that around so recklessly. Well, I, I just feel like God led me. That's easy to paint anything we want to really do on our own. Any idea that we have that we really like. And, and I would say this, it is a wise and disciplined person indeed that can discern be, between a, a great opportunity. Oh man, this opportunity just came out, of, came out of nowhere. It must be the leading of God. It might be. It might not be. A path of peace. Boy, this, this, this is the, well, it, it might, might not be what I, I, I really want to do, but this is what will keep more folks in our church. We'll have a bigger crowd if we do this. And, and if I leave that alone and don't say anything about such and such or whatever, that, and then we'll have more folks here or whatever. I'll keep peace in the family if I go this route or that route. And you know how Jesus, he loved keeping peace. I'm not sure where you read that. So we follow that path. The path of least resistance, someone has said, has made rivers and a lot of people crooked. It's very true. Place of predictability. It's a place where I kind of know where I am. I, I, I'm not afraid. It, it just bolts right up to me. Uh, and, and when we see that, sometimes we think, man, that must be the leading of God. 
I, I love learning, you know that. I love reading, you know that. I love teaching, you know that. And man, I can tell you, there was a time in my ministry to where I knew what I was wanting to do. It bolted right up to me. I was going to be a seminary professor. And I just was, I thought, man, this preaching thing was a running start, you know. It just kind of got me going. And boy, this is, and when I finished graduate school, I started making plans then. It wasn't long that I got a letter in the mail. I was pastoring right here in the county, a little church over here on Union Road. And, and, and back then it was really a little church. I, we hadn't been there very long. And, and, and I get this letter in the mail that I've been accepted at Duke Divinity School. I'm like, yeah, boy, God's will is just unfolding left and right. Here we go. And then the next thing you know, if that wasn't enough, I get another letter in the mail. I just graduated, I don't know, a month or so. I get another letter in the mail that I'd been given a presidential scholarship to go to Southeastern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And if you know anything about our six seminaries, uh, 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 they don't do that much up there, but I would have. Oh yeah, you can't get more academic than that. I thought, yeah, man, this is God. He's working all of this out. And I never could get a peace in my heart about it. I, Loretta and I, we talked about going down to Duke one day and spending the day and all of that. And, 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 and man, I, I just thought, boy, this has got to be of God. And I never, ever got a peace about it. All I could get in my mind was God had called me to do what I'm doing this morning, standing here in front of you preaching the Word. And I just could not get away from that. And the more I prayed, the less peace I had about it. And I can tell you now, had I, had I not just really had God to just put it right in front of me and, and let me know that, Mike, I did not call you to be a seminary professor. I called you to preach the Word of God and, and to not preach it to a bunch of intellectuals. I was... I, I, I wanted that in that climate. I wanted in in that uh, community. I enjoyed that, and I thought, man, I'm going to be a hit right there, boy. That, that that's going to bolt right up to me. It would have been a disaster. Oh, I might could have pulled it off and just kept telling myself it's God's will. I don't know, but I have a friend of mine named Kenny Gooden. I don't think any of you know him, except maybe my wife, but Brother Kenny and I went in the ministry about the same time, about 41 or two years ago. He's at Union Grove Baptist Church up in Yakinville. We talk every once in a while. He and I were friends with about a dozen other pastors, young men at Fruitland. All of them. Something happened. Some of it was not their choice. Some of it was their own undoing. Still friends with a lot of them. But Kenny and I are the only two in that whole group that are doing what I'm doing this morning. Still standing up in a pulpit. Still preaching the Word of God. Because that is what God called me to do. Go where God leads you. 
not where you want to go and say, God led you. I mean, if I did that, and I've seen people do it, I, I would feel a call to start a bass fishing ministry. Oh, we'd pray before we launched, and I'd do a devotion or a deer hunting ministry. Oh, yeah. And when we'd be out there tracking those deer, I got some blood here. Amen. I see the blood, brother. We could quote some verses. We could make it into a something or another that was enjoyable. And, and basically what it would be is just doing what I want to do and slopping the paint on it that this must be God's will. And you see how well I paint now. <laughs> Oh, be led of God. That's how you get to one of those places where God just changes your life. Secondly, it's a place of separation. I'll move on, try to more quickly. It says, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. They got away from everything else. We don't know which mountain it was. Some say Mount Tabor. Some say Mount Hermon. We do not know which mountain this was. The only way to find out exactly which mountain it is is to go on a tour of the Holy Land and the bus driver will point right to it because he knows. But the finest archaeological minds in the world don't know for sure. <laughs> but it's one of those mountains over there. And he led them up and he got them away from everybody else. It, it wasn't... Just secrecy is separation. And sometimes we need that in our life. Sometimes we have to get away. And I don't mean to just take a vacation, but sometimes we have to just have some time in our life. And I try to do this every day. I still catch myself sometimes not allotting that time or, or, or not focusing myself like I need to during that time. But but to just put everything else out of my mind and put my focus in, and, and turn it toward God. There's a little book by St. John of the Cross called The Dark Night of the Soul. He lived in the 1500s. I think he was like a Carmelite monk. But he narrates the journey of the soul from its bodily home to its union with God. In us, we have a soul. And if we've given our heart and life to Jesus Christ, we started a process where the soul, some days it feels like it's just being ripped out, roots and all. And it's moving toward that eternal abode with God. And along the way, there are times that are tough because there are things in this world that we can't control. We're not in glory yet. We're not living beyond the curse yet. So we lose money. We lose precious things. We lose um, people sometimes that we love, some of them may have gone on to be with the Lord, but, but it still hurts. Our heart is heavy. And, 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 and St. John of the Cross wrote this long poem, uh, about two books long actually, but it's, it's a poem about the dark night of the soul. And, and it's about how our soul is being constantly taken from here. We lose things. The dirt falls away from the roots of our soul as our soul moves closer and closer to that eternal home. 
The journey is called the dark night because the darkness represents the hardships, he says, and difficulties the soul meets in detachment from this world. We are going to run into some things here that are going to be tough. And reaching the light of the union finally that we have with our eternal Creator. We will finally be there one day. He says this, and I'll quote him. When depression passes, all is restored. But when the dark night passes, all is transformed. One day we will be with God. As I move closer and closer to that day in my own heart and life, I can just tell you, sometimes it's tough. I've been so blessed even through difficulties, but I can tell you at 61, boy, it feels a lot different than 31. I sense it. My health is not what, and some of you I know, please, you're sitting here going, look, Pastor, I'm 91. I don't want to hear it. I got that. I understand that. One day I'll be there, but you at least understand what I'm saying, right? You realize and know that the longer you move through this world, if you have your focus on the Lord, the less this world impresses you. The more bored you become with this stinking place, the more ready you are to say goodbye to it and to move on to glory and to be with God forever. It is the soul returning to its Creator. And there's some of those days that are kind of tough. Well... It's a place of separation. Thirdly, it's a place where location is not important. I just told you, if it's on a high mountain, we don't know which one. I'll say this and we will move on. The greatest sermon that's ever been preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived was a sermon on the mount, and we don't know which mountain that was either. But the words he spoke on that mountain absolutely have changed life after life after life. So the location, the place is not important. I love it that we have a nice building here. I'm glad we got a great place to meet. Wouldn't take anything for it. I'm not one of those preachers that's ready to go burn every church building down in the country. I do not believe that would bring revival any more than anything else crazy we could do. That's not our problem. This building is not standing in the way. It can, but I don't believe that's the problem in our churches. It doesn't matter, though, where we meet as long as we meet with God. Number four, it's a place where we can see the glory of God. Just kind of listed them here. Nothing fancy about the outline. Verse 2, it says, And He was transfigured, metamorpho is the verb form of the Greek word. We get our word metamorphosis from. It means a transformation that starts inside that makes itself evident on the outside. He was transformed, transfigured. Same, identical same word used in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Exact same word. So it's to happen in us as well. But he was transfigured before them. And it says his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. Man. You see, this is what happened. Most of the time, when Jesus walked this earth, he looked way more like a carpenter than a creator. 
because of my own nature, I guess, my personality. I can't, I, I, I just think sometimes, and it, it, maybe it shouldn't, but it entertains me to think about when they were pulling the beard out of the creator of the universe. I'm not saying I enjoy that as far as the pain it caused my Savior, but I'm thinking if they just knew who he was. It's sort of like those Clint Eastwood movies when you know he is going to walk in. And I, I hate to close your ears if you don't. Spoiler alert, okay? But in every one of them, he kills all the bad guys. Okay? That's why he's 100 years old. He killed them all. Josie Wells. Oh, man. When he spit that tobacco out, I've been diving behind something. I'm like, do you guys not ever watch movies? He's about to kill every one of you. <laughs> I love it when he tells the old Indian man in that one, he says, yeah, I don't have many friends. I get to be friends with people who get around people I like, and they don't hang around long. And the old Indian said, I notice when you get to where you don't like them, they don't hang around long either. Man, this is a creator of the universe. Had he not been going there to die for a wretch like me, the first time that man slapped him, he could have just stopped him and said, you touch me again, and I'll give you your own universe. And you talking about climate change. Wow. But no. As a sheep led to the slaughter, he just was quiet before those who sheared him. He was a son of God. At this one moment, though, he let a little bit, this experience, let a little bit of who he really is shine through. Jesus didn't take all of the disciples up there. He only took three of them. He could have done this in downtown Jerusalem, but he did it on a mountain somewhere and we have no idea where. But he had a plan in mind and he didn't want the world running up to him thinking, okay, you're going to be our cosmic genie and you can make all our problems go away and all of that and you can feed us and clothe us and take care of us. No, he said, I came for something else because your greatest need is not bread. Your greatest need is the bread that if you eat it, you will live forever. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sins and your reconciliation to God and to receive my righteousness as a gift of grace in place of your own sorry righteousness. That's why he, why he came. I think nowadays sometimes we still have that a dim view of God sometimes. I, I, I don't I, I understand when he walked this earth, he was a very simple person and he intended to be that way. But I think sometimes our ideas about God are still too simple. I hear people talk about the man upstairs, the big guy, the whatever. I'm like, what are you talking about? He does not live upstairs and he's not a man. Are you out of your mind? He is the creator of the universe. A.W. Tozer said in his book I read recently, The Knowledge of the Holy, says no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Do you know why Allah is basically a terrorist? Because that's who created him. 
I'm not saying every Muslim is. But I'm saying when it started, if you read the history, when you're on that little peninsula and you got people that are of all kinds of different cultic faiths and all of a sudden this guy named Muhammad brings them all together. And one of the things that came along that really helped change uh, that particular religion, believe it or not, was the camel. Because they couldn't cross that peninsula until they started uh, domesticating or, or I don't know, I, I, I don't know where the camels were. Maybe they ordered them on Amazon. I don't know. But they got camels and they could ride and they could move together. And all of a sudden, this guy named Muhammad is able to pull all of these people together and give them a sense of nationalism and, and a sense of pride like sometimes gets a hold of us here in America. We better be careful with that. But when you create your own God, you will always create Him in your image. No religion, Tozer says, has ever been greater than its idea of God. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. I'll say this and move on. The gospel according to John is not a synoptic. It's a different gospel. It's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I believe one of the reasons that it's different, one of the main reasons it's so different when he writes about Jesus, he cannot stop talking about, hey, he is God. And the reason he can't is because of this trip up the mountain. I saw it. He'll write about it. We beheld His glory. We got to see Him. I know you saw a carpenter. If you could have been there that day, we saw Him like you just wouldn't believe. That's what He writes in His Gospel. It's so different than anything else. Number five, it's a place where we are overshadowed. If I say I'm going to move on quickly, will you forgive me? If I probably am not going to. I feel like maybe you will stay if I keep saying I'm about done. Verse 5 says a bright cloud overshadowed them. That's what should happen when we worship God. We should be overshadowed. Most of the time in a lot of churches, I'm telling you, our worship features me instead of overshadows me. I've never in my whole life been more tired of church becoming a gig. A place where all the local musicians and singers I love, I love today. Man, I, it was simple. It was vertical. We were singing to God. Man, I love that. It was so awesome. And yeah, we, I, I like it some days when we rock it out. Man, when Glenn Wilson used to sing, sweet, sweet presence of Jesus. Don't get me started, I'll sing it. My goodness, I loved all of that. But I'm just telling you, I have grown weary of making the church into the one place where I can go and play an instrument because I couldn't make it out there in the other world. I believe, I've, I know. I have met people that if they were to get an invitation from Nashville to come play whatever kind of music, they would never 
walk in another church as long as they live. We have stages and lights and plug-ins and audiences. We even designed our buildings to where they look like theaters. Because here's the show. Our worship. Our worship should overshadow us, not feature us. Number six, it's a place where we can hear the voice of God. That's something else about getting in one of these spots in your life. While he was still speaking, Peter, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Boy, sometimes my prayer, and I think this is written in an old prayer book somewhere, God silence every voice but yours. Sometimes I need that so badly. I, I hope I don't lose my job over this. But I hear voices. You do too. How do you like that one that tells you you're gaining weight. It usually hangs out around the mirror, right? Hate that one. What about the one that told you from the time you were a kid, maybe the first time it came from the lips of somebody that you thought was almost God, like your dad or your mom, but somebody levels some criticism at you that you've just never healed from. Those are voices. Boy, sometimes when I'm trying to be alone with God and I'm trying to pray and I'm trying to reach out to Him, I hear all that you're not good enough kind of stuff. And, and oh man, wow. I just, boy, I have to pray sometimes, God, don't let me hear any voice but yours. I, I, I just need to hear no other voice but yours, God. As a matter of fact, Jesus is... He has already told Peter one, one time, you need to shut up. You need to knock it off, Satan, because I have already don't want to go to the cross and I don't need you giving me some jazz that you don't even understand about, well, I really don't have to and you're not going to put up with it. And I, yeah, I know you're going to be there that night hacking off ears with a sword and carrying on. You're not going to give it up. But I have to go to the cross, Peter, because I have to die for sinners like you in Michael Snellgrove. Sometimes I just need to hear God's voice. God just silence all voices but yours. Number seven, a place where we can experience God's presence. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces to the ground and they were terrified. That's a pretty good experience when you can't even get up off the ground. They felt God's presence that well. I want to move on to number eight. It's a place where we experience the grace of God. I love this. It says in verse 7, And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up, do not be afraid. The word in the previous verse for fear, man, it's, it's terrified. It's terrified. 
And yet they're on the ground. They're face down. And they're lying there. Scared out of their minds. They can't even stay on their feet anymore. And they feel a hand touch them. And it's Jesus. And he says, get up. It's okay. It's all right. It's all right. Man, sometimes, boy, I can tell you, whether it's God or life that puts you flat in your face, there's just nothing in the world like knowing without a shadow of a doubt when I was in the middle of that darkest night that I felt the hand of God touch me. I felt the hand of God reach out to me. And it might not have been uh, something you visibly saw. Maybe it was far more clear than something you would visibly see. Maybe it had more clarity than that. Maybe you knew that God touched me and God brought His comfort to me and I could feel God put His arms around me and hold me when I felt like that life was worth nothing anymore. I felt the hand of God. Number nine, a place where we can find Assurance in verse 5, the voice said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He's on the right path and he's doing the right thing. Now, I know he's God. I know the voice is coming from the Father, it's speaking over the Son. I know that that's not three different gods. I got all of that. There's no way I can explain the Trinity. If I had that ability, I doubt there's any of us here that could understand it. It's hard for us to even wrap our mind around that. But God is making a statement. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And guess what I've done? I brought the one who is the father of the law, basically, and that's Moses. And I brought the one who is the prince of the prophets, and that's Elijah. I brought them here today to hear this because I want them to know and the world to know. And I want Mike Snellgrove one day to preach thousands of years from now in a pulpit somewhere that if you have the law and if you have the prophets, that's not enough. You have to have a Savior and His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And last of all, it's a place of instruction. The voice from God said, listen to Him. This takes us back. I love passages that do this. Circle back. I guess you've heard that lately. I have to circle back to you. Well, God circles back to us right here. He takes us right back to where we started in chapter 16. When he told you that he had to go to the cross. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is the right plan. Might not seem like it to you, Peter. But listen to what he has to say. As we close this morning. I think what Peter was reaching for when he fired off his mouth in the previous chapter. Without knowing it, 
I, I, I doubt he realized it. I mean, they, these guys are pretty overwhelmed. Matter of fact, Luke says in his version of this story that when they got there, that these three guys were so exhausted they were asleep. Hey, they, they, they were so physically tired at this point in their life. But I think what Peter is getting at is what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Surely we can somehow another let Jesus just be a good example. But besides, he fed the hungry and he took care of the needy. And that's what we need to do. That's, that's, that's how we please God. Nothing about sin. Nothing about the forgiveness of sin. I hear our world today, progressive Christianity. I just read uh, two books on it. One this week is incredible. But I, I, I just... It is amazing to me how that people that I know of, some of them used to sit here. But they bought into that idea that somehow or another this slaughterhouse religion where a God butchers his own son for forgiveness, that's a, that's a Canaanite kind of idea. That's, that's, not a, that's not the God I know. I bet it's not. Because remember the God you know, He thinks just like you. I think some people, they don't realize that. Have you, have you talked to people sometimes and they go, my God feels the same way I do. Like they finally found the real God. It was like they were at Walmart sifting through leisure suits. If you don't know what that is. And they finally found the perfect fit. This one, oh man. Makes me look slim. That's probably not true. You found the right size plastic flip flops at Uncle Joe's shop. I don't know. It's like I finally found a God that just fits. My God, I, I just, I don't know. I just, boy, finally just fits right in there with, with what me. I've been reading Rob Bell and, and Beth Moore and all of them, and I'm, man, I finally found a God that is just, oh, just like me. No, you didn't. You created a God that's just like you. Thinks just like you. Bonhoeffer said this, cheap grace he says, it's the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism without church discipline. It's communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's cheap grace. That's the kind of grace that's worthless. Where we think if we're good boys and girls that we get to go to heaven. And most progressives these days feel like somehow or another they believe in what's called ultimate salvation or ultimate redemption. That one day we're all going to go. Could you imagine being a lost person in heaven? <laughs> that would be like being in the other place. 
What are you thinking? I want to ask the universalists, what do you think those lost people are going to do? Hang around up there for the first million years and finally start just kind of catching on? Yeah, I think Jesus is pretty cool. I never really saw him this way when I was on earth, but you know. What are we thinking? Oh, as I close this morning, I think one of the most popular passages is the sheep and the goats where Jesus says, I was hungry and you fed me and I was in prison and you visited me. Powerful passage. A lot of people like it because it's social gospel. If you don't read it all. Because if you read to the end of it, he tells those on his left, depart from me into eternal damnation where you will spend eternity in hell fire. Most of the time they don't quite make it to that last verse. They're ready to open a soup kitchen already. Oh yeah. We're going to be good boys and girls and take care of folks. I can tell you something. Our greatest need, our greatest need is to be reconciled to God, our Creator. That's what Jesus came to do. I can't tell you how my life has changed in the last year. This, I, I know you're thinking, well, you sure try every week. I, I'm sorry I can't shut up about it. I say this all the time. I'm not glad this happened. I'm not glad they found a tumor in my colon. I'm not happy about any of that. Whew. That week in the hospital, my goodness, I'd tell you more, but my doctor's sitting in here this morning. Whew. What I am saying to you, though, is this. I've been to a few places in the last few years where I couldn't hear any voice but his where I was so flat on my face and so afraid that I could finally feel the touch of his hand saying either way no guarantees but either way it's going to be alright it's going to be alright I'm with you Mike I finally got to see God in that kind of light. It's, it's changed my preaching. It's changed my attitude. My goodness. I even love my wife more. Really. I tell her, I think every day how much I love her. I used to not tell her, but about, I don't know, a couple of times a year maybe. She asked me one time, why don't I tell her more? I said, well, I told you when we got married, if anything changes, I'll let you know. I'm a romantic. I should write novels. I just tell you, it's a good place sometimes. It can be frightening. But having an experience where God leads you, don't resist that. 
Stop following the path of least resistance. If I hear another person stand up at a graduation and say, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. I've had some dreams I didn't need to follow. And until Jesus Christ changed my heart, I didn't need to listen to it either. Let him transform your life. Let's pray. Our Father, I come to you. I thank you, God. And you care so much about us, Lord. Even when you knew your disciples, God, were They still weren't going to completely get it. They would still be asking you questions about some prophecy in Malachi when you left the mountain. You knew that. But Lord, you knew it was important for them to experience you at a level like they never had before. I pray that for all of us here today, God. I pray, Lord, that we would have a time in our life. I don't wish pain or suffering on any of us, God. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. But, Lord, whatever it takes sometimes to get our attention off of everything else, making money, excelling in this world, saving our life, God, hoarding our life, protecting the rights to our life, making our decisions, God. Lord, would you please help us to give that up? And Lord, sometimes I do know that it takes a pretty hard jolt to get us to look at the priorities differently. So God, if that is what it takes for someone here today, I pray that. I know you'll be with them. You'll help them back up off the ground. You won't forsake them. But I pray, God, we could have that in our lives. Help us to know you like never before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or would like to know more about Cornerstone, please visit our website at ServantsWay.com or email us at office at ServantsWay.com. Cornerstone Fellowship is located at 1186 Hudlow Road, Forest City, North Carolina. Please join us again next week.